Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The next section now from Waitara Church deals with the eternal existence and deity of Christ. And in this section, we will look at Christ as the Son of God and the objections that are made to the fact that Christ is the Son of God. Now, one of the primary objection texts is John chapter 8, verse 58, where Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the objection continues by quoting the Desire of Ages passage that comments on this verse. And the quote goes like this, Silence fell upon the vast assembly. The name of God, given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence, had been claimed as his own by this Galilean rabbi. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one, he who had been promised to Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from the days of eternity. End quote. In this statement, we're told that when Christ claimed to be the I Am, we're told here that he claimed the name of God, which was given to Moses. Now let's have a look exactly what did Christ mean when he said I am in other words why did Christ claim the name of God as that statement told us which is being used as an objection why did Christ claim the name of God what was Christ doing with the name of God well if we read the Bible in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 we'll find that Christ obtained something we're told there being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Christ, by virtue of inheritance, obtained a more excellent name. Now what or whose name would that be that Christ obtained by inheritance? It is certainly the name of God. But lest we be mistaken, let us confirm that with a thus saith the Lord. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21, we are told, Behold, I send an angel before thee. This is God speaking to Moses. God the Father is speaking to Moses. And he is told here, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. Of course, the angel that is referred to here is none other than the ark of all angels, Michael, the great prince, the son of the living God. He was the one that was sent in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night before the children of Israel. We know that this is a divine being, not a mere angel, because in verse 21 we are told that if he is provoked, he will not pardon their transgressions. Forgiveness of sins is an act of divinity. And that is why we know that this is not a mere angel, but this is the very Son of God. Now notice here, God says that His name is in that angel. His name is in His Son. Why? Because His Son obtained that name by inheritance. Now this, of course, is in the Old Testament, thus teaching us that Christ obtained that name by inheritance long before he came in Bethlehem. So this is why Christ claimed the name of God to the Jews when he said, I am. He claimed the name of God because he has that name by inheritance. God's name is in him. 
Now let's confirm this from the spirit of prophecy. Reading from the book That I May Know Him, page 12, quote, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Christ was using the great name of God that was given to Moses to exp express the idea of the eternal presence. See Exodus 3, 14. So here we're told very plainly that when Christ said, I am, he was using the great name of God. Let's read again now from the same book, page 102, and get some further clarification. Quote, all through the pages of sacred history, where the dealings of God with his chosen people are recorded, there are burning traces of the great I am. In all these revelations of the divine presence, the glory of God was manifested through Christ. In the plan of redemption, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So we're told here very plainly that the great I am has burning traces throughout all sacred history. In these revelations of the divine presence, it is the glory of God that is manifested through Christ. So the great I am is God manifested through Christ. Now let's continue reading back in the Bible. And we ask ourselves the question, did Christ claim to be the only true God when he said, I am? Was this Christ's intention when he told the Jews, I am? Did he mean to tell them that I am the only true God? Is this the meaning that he had in mind? Well, in order to ascertain what is the meaning that Christ had in mind when he said, I am, all we have to do is keep reading in the Bible and see, does Christ anywhere else clarify what he was trying to say? Now notice what Christ said a little earlier in John chapter 5 and verse 43. He said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. So Christ very plainly told the Jews earlier that he came in his Father's name. And when Christ said, I am, we're told in the spirit of prophecy that he claimed the name of God, the great name of God, who is the great I am. And we know why he claimed it, because it is his by right of inheritance. It is in him. And he plainly told the Jews that he came in his father's name. And this is the name that he claimed when he said, I am. Now, a little further, in John chapter 10, verse 36, Christ again says very plainly, Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. So Christ's claim to be the I am is equal to claiming to be the Son of God. He was claiming the name of his Father. And being the only being in the universe who has that name by right of inheritance, that is what he meant when he said, I am. He meant that he is the one who has the Father's name. He is the one who obtained it by inheritance. He is the one who went before Israel. He is the one who is the Son of God. Now the Jews understood that very plainly. Let's read in Desire of Ages again, page 469. Quote, we'll read the whole statement this time. And notice what is the meaning that is intended. Silence fell upon the vast assembly. The name of God given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence, had been claimed as his own by this Galilean rabbi. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one, he who had been promised to Israel. 
whose goings forth have been from of old from the days of eternity. Micah 5.2, marginal reading. Again, the priests and rabbis cried out against Jesus as a blasphemer. His claim to be one with God had before stirred them to take his life. And a few months later, they plainly declared, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. John 10.33 Because he was, and avowed himself to be, the Son of God, they were bent on destroying him. How so very plain. The spirit of prophecy is a wonderful light in a dark place. When Christ claimed to be thy am, he claimed the name of God. He claimed to be self-existent because that was his nature that he inherited from his father. He claimed to be the one whose goings forth have been from of old from the days of eternity. The one who was promised to Israel. Now, any Bible student will know that the one who was promised to Israel was not God the Father. And we shall find that out in a minute. But notice, at the end of that statement, it says, because he was and avowed himself to be the Son of God, they were bent on destroying him. The Jews understood what Christ meant, and Christ meant exactly what he said. He said, I am, and claimed the name of his Father, to show that he is the one who has that name by inheritance. Now, when Christ said... I am, did he make the claim of being the only true God, the Father? Let's read about Christ's self-existence. In Signs of the Times, August 8, sorry, August 29, 1900. Signs of the Times, August 29, 1900. Quote, Before Abraham was, I am. Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. The message he gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel was, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. The prophet Micah writes of him, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Christ, we're told here, is the I am. He is the pre-existent, self-existent, not God, but the Son of God. In claiming to be the I am, Christ is emphasizing the fact that he is the Son of God. Now here it's very plain that he was a Son of God in his pre-existence, that is prior to Bethlehem. And being the Son of God, he is therefore by nature self-existent because his father is self-existent. And again, she quotes if, uh, Micah 5 and verse 2, which talks about his goings forth, that his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now let us continue. After quoting Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we're told he is the one that was promised to Israel in the quote that we read earlier. Now that's a question we asked earlier. Who was the promised redeemer to Israel? Was it the father or the son? I think everybody knows the answer to this question, but our next objection actually uses the verse that answers that question, and that's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And this year, verse here is used as an objection. Let's read it together. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice here we're told very plainly that we were to be given a son. This is none other than the Son of God. Now here's the objection reading underneath. We're told, this is clearly a messianic prophecy referring to Christ as the everlasting Father. It equates Christ with God the Father and calls him the mighty God. Now this is a very misunderstood text. Now let's look at it carefully, asking ourselves a few questions and see what does the text say and what does the text mean. Is the text saying that Jesus is God the Father? Is he the Father of himself when the text says that he shall be called the everlasting Father? And who is he the Father of? Is this verse trying to tell us that Jesus and the Father are one and the same person? And the answer is definitely no. Jesus will be called by these titles. That's a future sense. And the answer of who he is the Father of is given to us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where we are told, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So Jesus is the father of the children which God hath given him. As he said in John chapter 17 and verse 26, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. He is the one that in verse 12 in Hebrews 2 said, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In John 17, 26, he says, I have declared thy name unto them. He is the one that says, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. The Spirit of Prophecy tells us in commentary on this term in Desire of Ages, page 483, quote, However much a shepherd may love his sheep, he loves his sons and daughters more. Jesus is not only our shepherd, he is our everlasting father. And he says, I know mine own, and mine own know me, even as the father knoweth me, and I know the father. John ten fourteen and 15. What a statement is this? The only begotten son, he who is in the bosom of the father, he whom God has declared to be the man that is my fellow, the communion between him and the eternal God is taken to represent the communion between Christ and his children on the earth. So Christ is the everlasting father of the children, his children on earth. Continuing, now we come to the story of the baptism of Jesus. And the baptism of Jesus is again one of those popular misunderstood objections that are used or pillars, I should say, that are used to promote and defend the doctrine of the Trinity. And the text that is used here is the account as recorded by Matthew in his third chapter, verses 16 and 17, which tells us, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And of course, in this passage, because Jesus, the Spirit of God, and the Father, the voice from heaven, speaks, they're all present at the same time 
it is inferred and deduced that this must be teaching a trinity. And here is the explanation as given to us by Waitara Church, which tells us another clear text where all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned, Christ, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven. And the parallel accounts in the other Gospels are given as reference. Now, first of all, let's just quickly say, I don't even think it need to be said that persons of the Godhead is not even mentioned in the text. It merely mentions Jesus, the Spirit of God, and the Father speaking with a voice from heaven. It doesn't tell us anything about the relation they hold to each other. It doesn't tell us that they are three persons of one Godhead. It says no such thing. Now we'll just turn to the inspired spirit of prophecy, which gives us commentary on this incident in Desire of Ages, that beautiful book, Desire of Ages, page 112. I will ask ourselves the question, what is the glory that Christ received at his baptism what is that light that came upon him now let's read it together this statement is so clear and self-explanatory that no commentary needs to be given reading from page 112 quote never before have the angels listened to such a prayer they are eager to bear to their loved commander a message of assurance and comfort but no the father himself will answer the petition of his son Direct from the throne issue the beams of his glory. The heavens are opened, and upon the Savior's head descends a dove-like form of purest light, fit emblem of him, the meek and lowly one. The people stood silently gazing upon Christ. His form was bathed in the light that ever surrounds the throne of God. His upturned face was glorified, as they had never before seen the face of man. From the open heavens, a voice was heard saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The question we need to ask ourselves, without much commentary, in this statement is this, Are the beams of God's glory an individual person, different to God? And the answer should be plain to anybody who reads that passage. We're told very clearly here that what came down upon Christ was not a bird, as many people imagine. And we just might take a, take a minute and clarify this much misunderstood story. People actually think that there was a bird flying around at the baptism of Jesus, a dove that came down upon him. Now, I'll tell you very plainly, there was no such thing. There were no birds flying around. The Holy Spirit didn't come down in a bird People read the passage and think the Holy Spirit came down in a bird. But the passage actually, actually says the Holy Spirit, that is the light from God's throne, descended upon Christ in the shape of a dove. As that statement very plainly says, that the heavens are opened right there in the middle. If we read it, if we read it again, the heavens are opened and upon the Savior's head descends a dove-like form of purest light. So light came down from heaven upon Christ and the light assumed or looked like the shape of a dove. And it came down, in coming down, it came down as a dove comes down. And that was light. So that light, that pure light that ever surrounds the throne of God is the Holy Spirit, according to the spirit of prophecy. Now let's confirm this a little further. Is the Holy Spirit another being 
or is it the glory of God? In John 17:22, we read that verse earlier. Jesus said, The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now Christ says that the glory that he received from the Father, he gives us. Now notice what Christ gives us. Signs of the Times, October 3, 1892, paragraph 4. Quote, Jesus is seeking to impress upon them the thought that in giving his Holy Spirit, he is giving to them the glory which the Father has given him, that he and his people may be one in God. How plain is the testimony of inspiration. When Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit, he is actually giving us the glory which his Father gave him. That is the same glory with which Christ was glorified at his baptism. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the glory that Christ gives us. That is by no means another being. The glory of God is not someone else different to God. Anybody who thinks about that will immediately see the lack of reasoning powers when we try and teach or believe that God's glory is someone different to him. God's glory is his very holy nature. It's called his Holy Spirit. That is what Christ gives us. Now notice Christ very plainly taught this when he told us where the Holy Spirit comes from. In John 15 verse 26, we're told plainly where the Spirit comes from. It says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, proceeds from the Father. In Desire of Ages, page 679, quote, With the golden chain of his matchless love, Christ has bound them to the throne of God. It is his purpose that the highest influence in the universe, emanating from the source of all power, shall be theirs. Question. What is the highest influence in all the universe that emanates from the source of all power that is to be ours? That is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God, the glory which Christ gives to us. Now notice, when Christ did indeed, at one time, give the disciples the Holy Spirit, where did the Holy Spirit come from? Because we just found out now that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. It proceeds from the source of all power. It's the highest influence in the universe, and it proceeds from the source of all power. Now, in John chapter 20 and verse 22, we have a very interesting incident. We're told there, And when he had said this, he, that's Christ, breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit now comes from Christ. It's actually Christ's breath. Christ breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, some people actually say that this is just an illustration. I do not read anything in the Bible 
in that context of that passage about this being an illustration. I actually read about it being an actual fact that when Christ breathed on them, he said unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And when Christ says something, it happens. And the fact that the Spirit inspired the Apostle to record it in that manner is important for us today to understand about the Spirit, that the Spirit, as we found earlier, is nothing but the life of Christ. It is the very breath of Christ. That's why when Christ breathed on them, He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Christ gives us His own self, His own life, which is His own Spirit. Notice now where the Holy Spirit comes from. Review and Herald, April 5, 1906. Paragraph 16, quote, The Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the only begotten Son of God, binds the human agent, body, soul, and spirit, to the perfect divine human nature of Christ. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father, and it proceeds from the Son of God. It is their very own personal presence. It is the life and glory and character and divinity of our master that is the holy spirit not someone else now we continue white our church goes on to make the objection in john chapter 14 verse 16 we looked at that earlier but we'll just quickly look at it again where we're told that we will be given in john 14 16 and i will pray the father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever and the objection is made that, not here, Christ will pray to the Father who will send the Holy Spirit, which is called another Comforter. Clearly identifying the Comforter as the Holy Ghost in John fourteen twenty six, which is true. The Comforter, the other Comforter, is the Holy Ghost. And of course, the objection is built on the fact that because the Bible says another Comforter, therefore it must be someone else different to Christ. Well, let's read the answer together. Who is this other comforter that Christ promised he would send? If we just read the Bible in its context, we will have all the answers that we seek. Let's see who this other comforter is. Let's read verse 18 of the same chapter. Christ says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. What does it mean when Christ says, I will come to you. Well, if you have learned anything about Christ, you have learned that Christ says what he means, and he means what he says. And when Christ says, I will come to you, that means exactly what it says, that he, Christ, will come to us. Notice, going on, down in verse 28, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said I go to the, unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Again, Christ says that he will go, and he will come again. Verse 23, notice now, when Christ comes, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Notice now who comes? We. Christ saying, My Father and I will come and make our abode with you. This is who comes. 
when the Holy Spirit is sent. Because we found that the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father. It also proceeds from the Son because it is His very breath and His very life. And when that Spirit is sent to us, we actually have the personal presence of Christ and the Father. That's why Christ said, we will come to Him. My Father and I will come to Him by our Spirit, not someone else. Because the Father and the Son are one in Spirit. And we shall see more on that later. Going on, the Comforter is the Holy Spirit. As we have found, it is the personal of presence of God and Christ. It is them both, not someone else. Now notice something very important. Who is it that comforts us? The Comforter is sent to comfort us. And Jesus said, when the Comforter is sent, that's me and my Father coming to you and making our abode with you. Does that mean that Christ and the Father comfort us? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Praise the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father are the ones who comfort our hearts. That's why Jesus said, when I send you the Spirit, it's really me and my Father coming and making our abode with you. This personal presence of Christ in our soul, the presence of the Father and the Son, this is the other comforter. This is the Holy Spirit. That's why we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now notice how the Spirit of Prophecy comments about the presence of Christ as our Comforter. We read those earlier in Manuscript Releases, Volume 8, page 57. Quote, Christ comes as a Comforter to all who believe. Notice now, this is the other Comforter that Christ talked about. It is Him coming as a personal presence in the person of His Spirit, which is His own omni presence, as we found earlier. Review and Herald, November 29, 1892, paragraph 3. Quote, The Holy Spirit is the Comforter as the personal presence of Christ to the soul. Review and Herald, April 30, 1901, paragraph 8. Quote, He is coming to us by His Holy Spirit today. Let us recognize Him now then we shall recognize him when he comes in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now that's a very plain statement. The same one who comes to us today, if we recognize him now, we shall recognize him when he comes in the clouds of heaven. And how does he come to us? He comes to us by his Holy Spirit. And we're told that we are to recognize him now. That's how we will be able to recognize him when he comes. And the question asks itself, if we don't recognize him now, will we recognize him when he comes? If we don't recognize that he is with us by his Holy Spirit, not someone else, as many people imagine. If we don't recognize that fact, will we recognize him when he comes? I do not want to take the risk of trying to find out the hard way. Continuing, Whitehart Church makes 
the objection. Other texts that are used to support the Trinity doctrine. Matthew 28.19 is one of the more popular ones, possibly second only to 1 John 5.7, where Christ says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And we're told, not the disciple treats all three equally in the name of. Now this text, once again, is one of those texts which says only so much, but the conclusions drawn from the text cannot be substantiated from the text. First of all, the word God is not even mentioned in this text at all. All we are told about is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If anybody reads the text in context and asks themselves, is Jesus teaching the disciples about the Godhead in this passage? And the answer is plain. The answer is no. He is not teaching them about the Godhead. He's actually telling them about baptism. He's telling them how they are to baptize. So the teaching of the verse is not about the Godhead. The text says that they are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching us that there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Holy Ghost. But it tells us nothing about the relation that they have between each other. It doesn't tell us that these three are co-eternal, co-equal persons in a trinity of gods. It doesn't tell us that these three make up three persons in one trinity. It says nothing like that. It just says there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Holy Spirit. And there most certainly is. But what is the relationship between those three? The text does not tell us. Now let's read from the Spirit of Prophecy and see how does she, the inspired prophet of God, explain to us the relation of these three. Testimonies, Volume 9, page 189. Quote, let them be thankful to God for his manifold mercies and be kind to one another. They have one God and one Savior and one Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is to bring unity into their ranks. So we have only one God, not three. We have one Savior and we have one Spirit. And the one Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That is the correct understanding of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one Father, one God, one Son, who is one Savior, and one Spirit, one Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, not someone else. And that knowledge is to bring unity into their ranks. That Holy Spirit is to bring unity into our ranks. Another text that is used is 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, which says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Again, the text here mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, mentions God, and it mentions the Spirit. But it tells us nothing about the relationship which they hold to each other. It doesn't tell us they are three in one or one in three. It doesn't tell us that these three are the Godhead. It doesn't tell us that these three are a trinity. It doesn't tell us that these three are co-equal persons. It doesn't tell us that these three are co-eternal persons. It doesn't tell us that these three are God. It says none of these things. And yet these are the conclusions that people draw from texts like this. If the reader will notice carefully, the word God is only mentioned once in the text, not three times. And it's mentioned not about Jesus Christ and not about the Holy Ghost, but it's mentioned about God, that is, the Father. And we know that not from the text, but we know that from reading the context. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with us all. The spirit of prophecy again plainly 
tells us in Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 172, quote, God will communicate by his own spirit with the soul. This is the communion of the Holy Ghost. It's not someone else communing with us. No, it is rather God who communicates with us, with the soul, by his own spirit. His own spirit is the Holy Spirit. And notice when God communicates with us by his spirit, we found earlier that when we receive the spirit, Christ said, I will come to you, my father and I, we will come and make our abode with you. That is the communion that God has with our souls by his spirit. Him and his son have fellowship with us. Now, if anyone reads First John 1 and verse 3, we are told very plainly there that our fellowship is truly with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. God communicates by his own spirit with us, not by someone else. Let us read about the baptism in Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1075. Quote, Christ made baptism the entrance to his spiritual kingdom. He made this a positive condition with which all must comply who wish to be acknowledged as under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Those who receive the ordinance of baptism thereby make a public declaration that they have renounced the world and have become members of the royal family, children of the heavenly king. Now notice, being baptized is acknowledging, is being acknowledged as under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what the baptismal formula means. The baptismal formula was not given to teach us that there are three persons in God, or that there are three persons making up God, or that there are three persons who are all God, and yet at the same time there is only one God. No, the baptismal formula was given as a sign that all those who accept it are to be acknowledged as under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were given as the authority behind baptism, not as a doctrinal teaching about the Trinity. Notice the end of that statement clearly clarifies that when we are baptized and are under the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not under the authority of a Trinity, but we become the children of the Heavenly King. Question, who is the Heavenly King? And any Bible student should have the answer handy. We become children of the heavenly king when we are baptized under the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We do not become the children of a trinity. Now we continue to our next objection from Waitara Church. The next objection now deals with the Greek word that's translated into English as begotten. And the Greek word is monogenes. And we'll see here this objection. It's a really very simple one, but we shall look at it nonetheless to help satisfy those who have questions in their minds. The New Testament use of the word or of the term begotten. In John 1.14, it is used where we're told, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word begotten or only begotten is used in that text. Now, reference is made to the Old Testament, which translates the word begotten as yalad, or to give birth. But this is again said to be, however, 
its use can be poetic example job 3828 who has begotten the drops of dew now i'm not sure what the reason is in comparing the greek of the of the new testament with the hebrew of the old testament and the comparison actually tells us that the word begotten means to give birth and we're also told that it can be poetic which is true but it's not necessarily every time poetic as genesis 3:16 and genesis 4:1 will very adequately demonstrate that the word yalad in hebrew which means to beget actually literally means to give birth but nonetheless we'll just look at the new testament the objection continues the new testament use of the word translated as begotten now there are four examples there but the one that concerns us is only the first one which is monogenes which is the one in question in such famous texts as John 3:16 and John 1:14 that we just read about where Jesus is called the only begotten son of God and the question is what does only begotten mean and the word that it comes from as we were saying is the greek monogenes now the other words geneo and then anageneo and prototokos are other words translated in the new testament very uh, in various ways as firstborn or to beget or to conceive but the one that we are questioning or the one that is being uh, objected with is the word monogenes or only begotten now anyone with a strong concordance in lexicon will just open up their lexicon to that word and the strong number is 3439 and they can look up the meaning for themselves without having to go to any lengths and breadths in trying to redefine a word that is very plain for us and if you look up the strong concordance the word monogenes means only born i.e. soul only begotten child and that's from strong's greek concordance uh, greek lexicon i'm sorry now whitehart church continues that in the new testament christians are called the sons of god which is very true as john 1:12 says but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name but the only problem with using that example is that the word sons of god is not the word monogenes that is used in this text so i do not really understand what the objection is all about as we said before if you look in the dictionary you find that the word monogenes means only born that's the meaning of the word trying to redefine the meaning because the implication does not satisfy our preconceived idea is not a good way to study the bible the objection continues so it was necessary to distinguish between these sons of god and the natural son of god by the use of the term monogenes meaning the only natural son of god amen to that jesus is the only natural son of god he is a naturally begotten son now let's read about it in the bible jesus is the natural son of god he is the only begotten son as the bible very plainly said and the word only begotten means just that he was the only one begotten of the father john 8:42 jesus said unto them if god were your father you would love me for i proceeded forth and came from god neither came i of myself but he sent me Now the New English Bible gives us a beautiful translation to this verse and it says Jesus said if God were your father you would love me for God is the source of my being and from him I come Jesus said that God is the source of his being that he proceeded forth 
and came from God. He is the only begotten Son. He was begotten. Notice again in John 16, we're told, verse 27, For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. What a beautiful verse. Jesus was speaking to his disciples plainly. He wasn't speaking in Proverbs. Plainly, he told them that he came out from God. He came forth from the Father. He was begotten of the Father. And the disciples understood that as plainly as they expressed. Notice how the American Standard Version renders that text. Verse 28, I came out from the Father and I'm come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go unto the Father. His disciples say, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no dark saying. Jesus plainly said, according to the disciples, he plainly said he came out from the Father. He was begotten, and he came into the world. He wasn't begotten when he came into the world. No, he was begotten. He came out from the Father, and then he came into the world. This is to refute the position that a lot of people think that Christ was begotten when he was born in Bethlehem. Christ was not begotten as the Son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. He was begotten as the Son of Man. Christ, the Son of God, was begotten long before Bethlehem. He was begotten when he came out from the Father. John seven twenty eight. continuing. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Again, Jesus says he is from the Father, and he was sent by the Father. Two actions. John seventeen eight in that last great high priestly prayer of mediation. John seventeen eight Christ says... For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. How very plain. Christ told the Father that his disciples knew surely that he came out from the Father. Why did they know that for sure? Because Christ taught them that very, very plainly. Now we come to our next section in this segment. And we've dealt with some of the Bible objections to the truth about God. Some of the Bible teachings that seem to support the doctrine of the Trinity. And we have found them to be non-supportive of that doctrine, but rather that doctrine is supported by assumptions that are built upon preconceived ideas. Now we come to a section that is more popular with Seventh-day Adventists, the section regarding the writings of the spirit of prophecy. Now, if anyone has been listening so far, you will note that we have been using the spirit of prophecy extensively because it is the light that God has given us in these last days. It is the light that shines in a dark place. And all the statements and quotes that have been used have been shown to substantiate and prove one truth, that 
the servant of the Lord did not believe in the concept of the Holy Spirit being a different individual to God. And she told very plainly that Christ was the begotten of God. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.